Welcome to your commercial-free, uninterrupted investment show, sponsored by the SEC-registered investment firm, Wilsey Asset Management, a fiduciary firm owned and operated by President Brent Wilsey, who has been putting clients' investment needs first for over 40 years. The Smart Investing Show has been giving unbiased financial information for over 27 years on local radio stations right here in San Diego, providing you with fundamental analysis on stocks and investments you want to know about. Now, here are your hosts, Brent and Chase Woolsey. Well, hello and welcome to Smart Investing Show. I'm Brent Wilsey, president of Wilsey Asset Management. Uh, thank you for joining the show today. We got a lot of things to talk about. Uh, we're going to kick off the show talking about banks and the economy. They reported earnings. We're going to go over what those are, what they're saying about the economy. Very important when banks report earnings. Also, to talk about uh, office space, what's going on in the office space. You may hear some bad things about that. There's bad and good. We'll talk about what those are. And then also, too, I want to talk about consumer spending. It came out much stronger than expected. We'll talk about that and what effects it had. And then with me, too, is a Chase Wilsey. Chase? Hey, good to be here, as always. And, uh, yeah, always excited to kind of take a closer look at those fundamentals of companies. Again, we'll look through those debt ratios. Being value investors, again, that's what we are here at Wilsey Asset Management. We're going to look very close at valuation ratios of different companies and give you our opinion on, on a few different stocks that are, I'm going to say, a little bit popular in the news right now. And i got to start with Conagra. Uh, last week, we said we'd talk about them. We were just so excited about the other companies. Didn't get to it. So we're going to get to, again, Conagra today. Uh, we're also going to look at Hertz. They had some big news there, uh, kind of hurting the EV market in terms of the pursuit of an all-EV future, I'm going to say, and also to Taiwan Semiconductor. Uh, the semi-space is just, wow, it is continuing to be very, very strong, uh, and it looked like they had some good numbers, so we'll, we'll take a closer look at that company as well. Also, too, Chase, we want to talk about, uh, we got a workshop coming up. We've not done a workshop in, in a year, and you keep saying we got people who want the workshop, want the workshop, but we have one coming up February 8th at 6 o'clock uh, in Scripps Ranch, at our office in Scripps Ranch. You're going to learn why value investing works best long term, why financial analysis can reduce your emotional roller coaster. A lot of people are very emotional about what's going on in the markets now and how we build portfolios for all kinds of markets. You want to attend that workshop, it is free, Thursday, February 8th at 6 o'clock. Sign up at our website, smartinvesting2000.com. Again, that's smartinvesting2000.com. Sitting is limited, so don't delay. And look forward to seeing you at the workshop on February 8th at 6 o'clock in Scripps Ranch. Well, let's talk about the uh, banks and the economy here. <clears throat> Each quarter, we get very excited to see what the major banks have to say about the consumer and the economy. Well, last Friday, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, and Citigroup all reported earnings. The overall comments were the consumer is still strong. We've got some information to back that up as well. The CEO of Wells Fargo said average deposit balances per customer remain above, and this is very important, above 2019 levels and loans to businesses were also up in the quarter. There were some write-offs on commercial office buildings with Bank of America charging off the most at $100 million. In total, the four banks charged off $6.6 billion of all loans, which was double what it was one year ago. Now, one thing as well to look at that, the charge-off rates, a lot of that comes from you know the fact that credit card spending is still strong, so it's the increase in loans leads to more charge-off. So that, that's something that, you know, it's a negative to keep an eye on, but also to a positive that spending is, what I'm going to say, controlled. The other thing we look at here as well is profits for the four banks in the fourth quarter. Well, they were up 11% from one year ago, coming in at 
$104 billion. That is a very profitable sector, I would say. JP Morgan Chase accounted for roughly half of that profit with $50 billion in the quarter. And these profits are pretty amazing because in addition to the $6.6 billion charge-off for loans, they also had to set aside $9 billion to pay a special Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation FDIC fee, which, uh, remember this last year, related <laughs> to the failures of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. So happy to report here that we do continue to believe 2024 will be a good year for the economy and the consumer. But as always, we will receive our bumps and bruises as the year progresses. And, you know, I think that's exactly what these reports show us from the big banks. Yeah, and the big banks, this is why we look at them. We get <clears throat> look forward to their earnings every quarter because they tell what's going on. They can see things, can see consumers borrowing money, can see our banks borrowing money. They can see deposits going up or down. And it was just a very good report uh, except for, again, the extra expenses. And they, they didn't they testify in front of Congress saying this is going to be very hurtful when they have these extra fees? Uh, they're, they're do, the Congress is trying to, well, the government is trying to do so much of that, just raking a lot of money out of them. Well, it, it's not necessarily the FDIC fee, I think, that they were talking about. It's this Basel III endgame, yes. which is, is uh, actually saw some positive news out of uh, Fed Chair, not Fed Chair, excuse me, but uh, one of the Fed governors, Bowman. She came out and said, like, look, we're not getting good feedback on this. We right. may need to reevaluate the the potential stringent standards that we're having for these big banks because the issue is they're talking about increasing the capital requirements for banks, which on one side, the banks are very strong. They could handle them. But on the other side, it will hurt the economy because you put too stringent of standards there. Well, they're going to look at saying, well, I'm not going to lend to high-risk people, so that's going to hurt certain subjects of the the economy. So there's going to be, I think, a little push and take here on that uh, potential Basel III endgame, and it could have an impact on banks and how much they buy back of their stock. But it, it's something, uh, again, that I'm very curious to see what the final regulations come out on that. And I don't remember the numbers, but I do remember they were very stringent that before. The, the capital requirements they had to have where they could handle like a 20% unemployment, uh, a, a drop in GDP of 10%. I mean, there are very high numbers that we haven't hit that since 1929. It seems like they want to make it even harder for them. I mean, what do they expect? You know, 30% unemployment? What are they looking for here? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's something to to really <clears throat> analyze, but the thing is, even with those requirements, I, I like the banks because, I mean, they're still able to generate good money. They're actually, I, I'm going to say, very safe because of right. all the regulations that have been placed on them. I don't think there's much risk in their their business. I, I think they are a very safe place to look at investing. And their valuations are low, too. I mean, it, it, it's very interesting. I was going to say on the, the reports, I was kind of disappointed. I'd love to listen to Jamie Dimon speak. He was very quiet on the conference call. He lets the CFO <laughs> do most of the conference call now. Yeah, and, and 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 I do remember too that they also the government asked all the big bank CEOs, "Will this hurt you financially?" And they all raised their hand. And the thing I think they're missing is the big banks are okay. We remember last almost a year ago now the banking crisis on regional banks. Those are the ones that are flying under the radar that can cause more problems. I mean, you get uh, you know two, three, four regional banks, they could have a problem that could hurt the economy. Well, and the thing you have to look at, too, is we've seen a lot of regionals start to report. And I think First Horizon was one that came out this past week. There's a few others, but it wasn't a widespread issue. It was these two banks that were doing risky mm -hmm. things in Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank that, that really kind of hurt a lot of other people in the banking 
sector. I mean, you look at the FDIC, and I, I still don't believe that they should have forgiven all the people there at the uh, banks above the FDIC limit because it's like you were in a risky bank. Who puts all their money in Silicon Valley Bank? You know, that, that's a high-risk bank, in my opinion. But obviously, that's now passed. They've had to deal with that FDIC fee, and, and they'll kind of continue to move on from here. And I do remember the reason why a lot of them did that was like, well, you know, we'll, we'll give you a $10 million, $100 million loan, but you got to give us all your assets. Yeah. So, you know, that's why the banks did that. That's why they got into trouble. And I, so. I think the reason a lot of people were okay for giving uh, those people that had above 250 is because there was more concern that if that didn't occur, there'd be more bank runs at other regional banks. So yeah. while I sit here and kind of think about my comments I just made, it's like you can kind of see again the, the positives and negatives that came about from that special FDIC assessment that, that came for those big banks. And I remember being on KSI saying, this is, I, I don't believe it's going to happen. And I'm glad it happened, but I also worried did that set a precedent that Oh well, this should happen all the time because you can't have that. So you the you gotta have businesses and banks the ability to fail because if you don't, they'll take too much risk doing things that they shouldn't be doing. Yeah. <clears throat> so, so moral of the story here, I think uh, again the banks' earnings just again great reports. I I think the stocks went down on the news. Many of them did. I think City went up a little bit because of layoffs. But I, I think again for 2024, <laughs> I'm very bullish on banks. I I think they're they're kind of indicating that. You know, the economy is in a good spot and uh, definitely intrigued with investing in that asset class. Well, well, let's talk about one thing that people are concerned about. That's the office space, commercial office space. It was reported that 19.6% of office space in major U.S. cities was sitting empty in the fourth quarter of 2023. Now, that is the highest number on record, which goes back to 1979. The problem is twofold. First, there's still some people working exclusively from home which I still say at this time, as time passes, more people will be coming back in the office as businesses need to increase their profits and productivity. Second, overbuilding occurred for many years with commercial buildings. And it was also noted that the bulk of the vacant space and buildings were actually built from the 1950s through the 1980s. Now, if you're going to get an employee to come back to the office, now they don't want to come back to some rundown building. They're asking for beautiful buildings with coffee bars, gyms, and yes, pickleball courts. I mean, that's been a, a craze that, that people have enjoyed, I'd say, over the last several months. But there are some good opportunities for investments in Class A commercial buildings that are in booming areas. But investors have to be wary that they are not investing in lower grade Class B or C buildings in rundown cities. And we talk about these buildings that were built back in the 50s through 80s. It's actually interesting. We have a, uh, give a little secret away here. We do have some investments in the commercial space. And what they do instead of develop new buildings, they go in and they refurbish the old right. buildings to make sure they're up to par with those newer buildings. And I think I'm going to talk a little secret uh, on our office uh, in Scripps Ranch down the street. They had a, I, I believe we'll call it a Class C building. So it's pretty old, pretty run down, needed to be painted. Somebody came in, tore down walls. I mean, they really redid yeah. that building. They, they put a nice, uh, you know, patio outside with, with lights. I mean, they really made it a nice place to go. So, I mean, you can refurbish those Class B buildings. Class C, maybe not, but Class B, I think you can. But that's what it's going to take to get people back in. And if not, that's why you like the Class A buildings, because they're beautiful. Yeah, and I do think as well, I mean, it, <clears throat> you look over the next five, ten years, people aren't really developing new buildings right. because of this oversupply, which I think could potentially lead to an undersupply five to 10 years from now. 
So, I mean, this is something that, you know, markets move off supply and demand, and they can really create shortages at times. Right. Well, well, let's talk about consumer spending, because this came out, and, uh, well, uh, I want to talk about two consumer sentiment came out on Friday, and the the number was 78.8 versus 70.2 to the estimate. I mean, that's well above 10% of what they expected, which is very unusual. Usually it's very tight. Well, on consumer spending, I think someone forgot to tell consumers to slow down on spending. Retail sales were strong in December as they grew 0.6% for the month, which topped the estimate of 0.4%. Looking compared to last year, December sales were up an impressive 5.6%. Areas of strength included food services and drinking places up 11.1%. Non-store retailers, they were up 9.7%. And also, too, electronics and appliance stores, they were up 10.7%. And this one was interesting to me because, gosh, remember for a lot of, I'm going to say 2022, Mm -hmm. and then also I think many months in 2023, they were just not doing well. And you had the big COVID boom. And I said back then, I thought that we were going to start to see a reversal in that and spending would increase in these areas is people would now start to say, oh, my computer is getting old. Now I need to actually replace a refrigerator. I mean, because these durable goods are now starting to hit four years old from COVID. So you're going to need to start to hit that replacement cycle actually pretty soon. And I think they, they could continue to be an area of strength, I think, in 2024. Now, areas that weighed on the report, well, that included gas stations, Gas stations down 6.6%, obviously with lower gas prices. That's why sales were lower. I actually think that's a positive because with retail sales still being up 5.6% and having the negative weight of gas stations, I think that shows retail sales are actually even stronger. Also do furniture and home furnishing stores, that was down 4.7%. And also do building material and garden equipment and supplies dealers down 2.3%. It looks like people still aren't quite ready to spend on on really that kind of home remodeling just yet. But I think as, again, interest rates stabilize, I think you'll see those uh, kind of start to take off this year as well. Now, while this is good news, it does show the consumer is still strong and it is leading to concern around the Fed's rate cut path. So that's kind of the downside to it. The, the news actually brought down the market initially because it's like, oh, you know, rates, they might not get cut as quickly. But I'm still optimistic that the Fed can balance the economy and rate cuts to navigate that soft landing we've talked a lot about. Yeah, and I was going to say, and it, it did disturb the markets, and, and the reason for that was, and we've said right along here in the Smart Investing Show, that we see rates being cut probably May, June at the, the earliest. We know they'll be cut, but that's probably going to be when, it, when it's going to happen. But there were people out there saying, oh, it's going to happen in March, it's going to happen in March. And it's like, no. And, and the reason for that volatility was the high expectations in March and when they saw this report, like, oh, my gosh, that's not going to happen, we never thought it was going to happen. And I knew you'd get this kind of data that's going to cause things like, oh, wait a minute, maybe things aren't so so good. Yeah, and you need to understand the Fed cutting rates does not mean that mortgage rates and the 10-year note are going to come down drastically. I still firmly believe that the 10-year note will be around 4% as we exit the year. I don't think you're going to see that move, but you will see short-term rates start to move lower. All right. I, d- I do want to mention again the workshop coming up on Thursday, February 8th. Uh, why you should attend? Well, it's a great place to learn about the fundamentals on investing and the strategies we use to find good value investments, how to invest in a volatile market, and investing to build wealth and to get to retirement. It's going to be, again, Thursday, February 8th at 6 o'clock in Scripps Ranch. To register for that workshop, go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. Again, that's smartinvesting2000.com. All right, uh, let's talk about uh, financial planning. For that, we turn to our financial planner, Harrison Johnson. Harrison, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, guys. How are you doing? 
Well, doing, doing very good. I love this topic. Uh, I'm not sure how many people are selling their home, but uh, today you're talking about taxes when selling a home because they can be enormous, can't they? They can. So we actually got a question um, from a listener. Mike uh, emailed in and asked about selling a home in California and the taxes resulted about it. So I um, wanted to discuss it a little bit. So first off, a house is considered a capital asset. And when a capital asset is sold for a profit, a capital gain is produced, which can result in a tax bill. Now, for homes that have been the primary residence of the seller for at least two out of the last five years, a home sale exclusion applies, which reduces the amount of capital gain by up to $500,000 for a married couple or $250,000 for a single person. So for example, if a home was purchased for $250,000, then sold years later for uh, $1.25 million, there would be a total capital gain of a million, and then this gain would then be reduced by that $500,000 exclusion, resulting in a taxable capital gain on the remaining $500,000. If the whole, um, if the home was instead sold, for example, $700,000 instead of $1.25 million after purchasing for $250,000, the gain would only be $450,000, which means the exclusion would completely cover uh, the, the gain resulting in no taxes on the sale. So if you have a gain, up to $500,000 can be excluded as long as you've lived in there um, for a total of two years in the last five-year period. So if there is a taxable capital gain after that exclusion, it will be taxable, but at the lower capital gain tax rates as opposed to ordinary income tax rates on the federal side. On the state side, the gain will be taxed as ordinary income since most states don't have a separate uh, tax bracket for capital gains. So for married couples with an adjusted gross income up to about $125,000 or less, including any taxable gains from a home sale, the federal capital gain tax rate is 0%. So if a residence is gonna be sold, it would be best to try and do that during a year with low income, such as a first year in retirement, so that that 0% tax bracket can absorb a lot of the gain. Um, once income goes above that $125,000 threshold, the next capital gain bracket is 15% up to an income level of $615,000, so real high, at which point the rate increases to 20%. Another thing to keep in mind is it's important to keep record of any home improvements or selling costs that you've incurred over the life of that home as those can be deducted against the capital, the capital gain. Um, due to appreciation in the housing market, it's getting more and more common for home sales to result in taxes. So be diligent about keeping records along the way and then be careful of the timing when you actually decide to sell a home so you don't have to pay more taxes than necessary. And Harrison, one thing we, we talk about at Wilsey Asset, we'll say as, yeah. Wilsey Asset Management is that with a financial planner and you're a fee-based planner, is people should be talking to you first and saying, and I, and I think they do this, the clients you have now, saying I'm thinking of maybe sell my home next year or the year after, because if they wait to do it, they may miss things. Is that correct? Well, I've had people, yeah, say, okay, well, you know, it's January. Last December, I, uh, I, I sold something. What can I do about it? It's like, <laughs> you can't do anything about it. It's already in the past. But if this is something that you're thinking about, and most commonly it's people who are, you know, getting closer to retirement. They're thinking about moving, maybe moving out of state. What do they do with the house? Should they sell it? Should they rent it? Whatever. 
whatever you're going to decide to do, you want to have a plan ahead of time so that you're getting the most value out of that asset that you have. And I know, Harrison, you and I talked about this a little bit, but, um, you know, this might be more comprehensive and it really depends on the person. But I've talked to people before where they're like, well, I think I'm just going to rent out the house. And the one thing you really have to consider is now you forego that capital gains exclusion. So a lot of times people are like, oh, I'll just rent it. I'll keep it. But now you've given up. If you live out of that house for, as you said, more than two out of the five years, now you lose that capital gains exclusion. And now the taxes could be a big problem if you look at selling it in four years. That's a that's a question that a lot of people have um, because, you know, they're looking at going out of state or, or whatever it is. And, you know, everyone likes the idea of investing in real estate. But you're right. Right now, with the primary residence, you have that five hundred thousand dollar exclusion where if you convert that residence into a rental property, after a few years, you won't be able to claim that exclusion anymore. You can for the first three years, um, but after that, that exclusion is completely gone. In addition to that, when it's a rental property, you'll be claiming depreciation, which if you do decide to sell at some point in the future, you'll have to recapture that depreciation and pay extra taxes on that. And then the other thing that happens that's more exclusive to Southern California is especially with properties that have mortgages, which is pretty common since property values are pretty large out here. Um, if you have a house and you rent it out, the relationship between what you can rent it out for after paying your mortgage and taxes and insurance and maintenance and everything else doesn't leave you with a whole lot of cash flow. There's other places in the country where you can get a little bit higher yield relative to the, to the value of the property. But in California, Southern California, the cash flow relative to the, to the value of the home is relatively low. So people have this issue where, you know, they keep this house as a rental property, but they're not getting that much cash flow for it. So then if they move, well, now they have to get a larger mortgage and they don't have the cash flow to pay for that mortgage on the new house that they purchased because all their equity is tied up in the rental property in California. Meanwhile, if that goes on too long and they try to access that equity later on, now they don't get the $500,000 exclusion. There's a huge tax bill that comes up that um, they otherwise wouldn't have had if they were to sell it and take the proceeds and do something else with it. And I'm thinking $500,000 tax-free, like that is huge. And to give that up, you got to have something really phenomenal. And, I, and again, this is why people talk to you. That's why you're on a retainer for people saying call you up and talk about different things because you miss that and you sell your house after four years. Like, what do you mean I don't get tax-free? Nope, sorry, you rented it. Now, I, I mean, that's a that's a huge mistake. Yeah. And I mean, again, with California, a lot of the return in the past in investing in California real estate has come through the appreciation. So, you know, oh, California real estate so great. You get a lot of appreciation. Well, if you can't access that appreciation without, you know, being able to do it tax efficiently, then you're, you're really getting rid of a lot of your value. So, you know, if you have a home, you're thinking about selling it, you're thinking about moving really be careful of what the tax consequence would be selling now versus, you know, converting to a rental. Look at the cash flow, look at the tax cost, because, um, you know, I think there's a lot of people out there that, that make that decision to rent, rent the house out. And then once you do that, if you don't act quick enough, you know, you could be paying an extra hundred, two hundred thousand dollars $200,000, depending on, you know, your income level. Great. Well, Harrison, thank you very much for your time there. Again, this is why people need a fee-based financial planner that can be there to talk about many different things, not just try to sell you some mutual funds and put together some financial plan through the computer there. So thank you very much, and uh, we'll talk to you on Monday.
right. Thanks, guys. We'll talk to you Monday. Okay. Bye-bye. Again, that's Harrison Johnson, our financial planner. He is a CFP. He is a fee-based planner. He is not on commission, does not try to sell you annuities or life insurance or anything of the high commission products or alternative investments. Uh, His job is to build a good financial plan designed specifically for you. If you want to contact him, go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. Again, that's smartinvesting2000.com. Or you can call him at the office, 858-546-4306. Again, that's 858-546-4306. Again, that's Harrison Johnson. All right. (laughs) You have something there, Chase? What are you laughing at? Did I say something uh, wrong? What did I do? No, I didn't say something wrong. It's just <laughs> that number still works, but we do have a ah, new phone shoot. number. How did well, I mess that up? Doggone okay. it. I did the same thing today when I was on the phone with somebody. I was like, oh, man. But that number's still good for now. But uh, our new phone number as well is 858 All right, it is time to talk about uh, companies, and and we got like three we want to talk about, and I I think I want to start off with Hertz, because Hertz is really uh, a rental company. They kind of went through uh, bankruptcy a few years ago, and it was kind of amazing. First company I've seen go through bankruptcy where these shareholders didn't lose all their money, but they've turned things around, and I remember them talking about, oh, we're going to have 100,000, I think it was, you know, Teslas, and we're going to go the EV route. Well, that didn't work out so good for them. And I think they're selling, what's it, 20,000 uh, of those EVs, Jace? Yeah, it's it's 20,000 exactly. And, uh, you know, it is interesting because I remember Tesla got the bump on like, oh, yeah, no, this is going to be huge. And yeah, I think Hertz came to realize that EVs, like many consumers are realizing, are more expensive than people thought. And that surprised me, too, when I read that. They said because of maintenance costs. I thought I heard there's not much maintenance costs, but Hertz says, yeah, it, it really hurt them. Well, you think about it, too. If you're, like, on vacation, that's when you're generally going to rent a car. If you're on a business trip, you're going to rent a You're not really familiar with the area. Where are you going to charge it? Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. so it, it becomes, I think, a little bit more complicated. And I, I was thinking about that when they first announced the EV deal. So, um I guess I'm not surprised this is happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and and they did say too that there was not a high demand for people renting electric cars, maybe because they don't want to mess around with it. Yeah, yeah. Too, too complicated. So so let's take a look at Hertz. Uh, see if it is a buy now with this pullback they've had. Uh, symbol is HTZ. They're in the rental and leasing uh, services industry. Wow, 16.6% short on the float. That that that's higher than I thought it was going to be. Uh, we do see that the P.E. ratio, very low, 3.2 versus 11. Price to sales, 0.3 versus 1.3. Uh, price to book value, 0.8 versus 1.9. And price to cash flow, 1.3 versus 7, uh, 7.1. So the valuation is looking very attractive here. Uh, we do see the earnings are down 19% for Hertz over the last year. The initial is up 25%. Sales for Hertz did increase by 6.2%. But that was about half the industry. And then on the uh, dividends, oh, they don't pay a dividend. The balance sheet, uh, we got a current ratio of 1.6 versus 1.8. Debt to equity, here's the killer, 5.3 versus 2.8. Don't like seeing that. Return to equity is 31.9. So uh, some good things, but I don't like that debt. We'll have to maybe look at the balance sheet more. I know we got to take a, a break here coming up. And when we come back, you got things you want to talk about in Hertz going forward on the company. Yeah, absolutely. Got a lot to talk about with, with Hertz still. And I, I got a couple of thoughts on that balance sheet too. We always kind of look at businesses like Hertz. Yep. The balance sheet may not be as bad as you may think. So we'll, we'll, we'll have that discussion when we yeah. come back. I'll look at it when you're doing the other thing so I can bring that up for you. How's All that? Right. All right. I like S- that. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
fly me to the moon. Let me play. Alrighty, welcome back this morning, Resin Show. Do not fly to the moon. You got to stay tuned for the rest of the show. We're gonna talk more about Hertz. Uh, talk more about the workshop. We got a lot of things to talk about. So don't fly to the moon. Stay here with us. Chase, you left off talking about the numbers. Actually, didn't start yet, but talk about the numbers going forward on Hertz. <laughs> I was gonna say this is not a promo for Dogecoin. This is not going <laughs> to the moon. <laughs> but yes, no, we were talking about Hertz there, and uh, again, their ticker symbol is HTZ. And I was gonna say. It looks like they exited bankruptcy, gosh, back around 2021 uh, is when they actually again came out. And I remember there was a lot of volatility on the yeah. stock. I remember people trading it for pennies. Uh, gosh, it came out, it looks like around $21 a share. And it looks like in 2021, the hype kind of continued. And it actually went, it looks like above 30 to $34 a share. So now at 8 dollars and 62 cents i mean we've seen a pretty drastic decline for hertz and i did have a, a comment just on the balance sheet i'm not saying that this is right <laughs> you have to do the further research but if you look at like automotive dealers many times they carry financing for you know carrying the cars on the right. lots it's lot financing it, it kind of distorts the balance sheet if you look at like the caterpillars or the john deeres they have financing on the equipment where it's not like I, I want to say real debt. It's just the way they have to carry the financing. It distorts the balance sheet. That could be a reason why Hertz debt to equity is so high. If that's not the case, you might be seeing Hertz go bankrupt <laughs> again next year. Well, <laughs> and, and again, we talked about that uh, off air on the on the break, and I, I said that the long term debt is seventeen point nine billion. The equity is like three point three billion. You could be right. I mean, because they do have to bring up all these cars. Are they buying them? Are they leasing them from the the automobile? Uh, manufacturers, but I did go back to March 2022. Uh, the debt was 13.5 billion, and the equity was 2.7 billion. So their debt seems to be rising quickly. Maybe are they bringing more cars? Maybe they bought too many EV cars. I don't know, but I would look at that before investing in this company. Yeah, because just conceptually, as I think, I mean, if you have a lease that you bring on. You don't own that car, right. so but you still have the liability of that car, so yep. it could really elevate things. So that's something if you were interested in Hertz, it might be worth kind of digging down into because, as you said, the valuations are, are I'm going to say, very strong. I mean, gosh, I go out to December 2024, I see estimated earnings per share here of $0.95. Cents. It, it gives us a target sell price of $15.77. Again, that current price, $8.62. So, I mean, the value is there, and I realized I forgot to give the 52-week low here was $8.10 in the high, yeah, $20.48. I mean, the stock has just really, really been under pressure as of late. Um, and if the balance sheet is <laughs> as weak as we say, yeah, I would not go near this thing. But if you could actually dive into it and it made sense, I, I mean, there's, there's potential here. And the other thing you have to realize is 2024 – we're not going to start looking at 2025 after they report earnings. Now, there's one less analyst there, but it looks like earnings could jump about 42% from 2024 to $1.36. Now, that generates a forward PE of about 6.6 .6 times. I mean, the, the valuations are very strong, as I said, with Hertz. But the other thing I look at, too, is this a dying business? And people have talked about this for years with the rental car market. How can it be a dying business? I mean, you get really uh, travel. With what, Uber what's the and Lyft coming. Like, this was years yeah. ago. I think people thought that the rental cars would go away as Uber and Lyft would take over. But, you know, they're still kind of moseying along, I'll say. I, I would say maybe in the cities, but I cannot imagine going to Hawaii and having an Uber driving around because <laughs> so much driving we're doing in Hawaii. Yeah. I, I guess it depends where you're going. But I, I don't see maybe a slowing business. I, I did notice, too, that uh, 30 days, 90 days ago, 
uh, the es- estimates have fallen 37%. So maybe on sale, but you got some research to do. I, I think it's worth it to do it on this company. Yeah, there's potential, as I said, but yeah, you, you got to really dive down deep here. Is that this thing could have some serious issues as well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, these are all things that we talk about when you hear us talk about the the businesses, the equities as we call them. That's why we do these workshops. And the next workshop is going to be Thursday, February 8th at 6 p.m. in Scripps Ranch at our office. And, And are you unhappy with your returns on your portfolio? Uh, maybe all the craziness going on, you're afraid to invest these days. Maybe you're just so confused you don't know what to do. If you want to find out how I've been investing successfully for over 40 years and how we use fundamental analysis to build a strong portfolio, then this workshop is for you. Sign up at smartinvesting2000.com. Again, that's smartinvesting2000.com. That workshop, again, is free. Thursday, February 8th at 6 o'clock in Scopes Ranch. Uh, love to see you there. Uh, I was going to go with the phone number, but uh, our new phone number, I don't want to confuse people. What's the new phone number, Chase? 858-224-0004. Again, 858-224-0004. And you know, it's not that hard to remember, but the pressure just came on me like to get it right. I, didn't yeah, like it right. I feel you. <laughs> All right. Well, well, let's move on and talk about, because uh, you know, we also want to bring up uh, and we said we talked about it last week, so we're gonna we're gonna do it this week, which is a great food company. I mean, they've been around forever. We're, we're talking about Conagra. Now their symbol is C A G, uh, and and we like food companies because they generally pay a good dividend. They're a stable business. You you're not gonna have tech type returns, but you're gonna get some nice dividends and some good returns. And we like in the portfolios when we get companies that are stable. If they earn 10, 15 percent over the long term, you're going to do pretty well on your investment. Keep this in mind that the 10-year treasury is at 4%, so you're doubling the safe rate. So let's look at uh, ConAgra again. Their symbol is CAG. Uh, we do see that they're in the packaged food industry. And I'm kind of hoping that you might look up some of their products because I think they have some very well-known products. Uh, float on the short, very low 2%, 87% institutional owned. P.E. ratio, not bad, but not great. 14 versus 21.4. Price to sales, 1.1 versus 1.2. Price to book value, 1.5 versus 2.5. And even price to cash flow, 8.9 versus 12.6. So all the valuation ratios are lower than industry. That's a positive. The peg ratio tells you how much you're paying for the future growth of a company, 11.6 versus, wow, 49.9 for the industry. Now, their earnings were up 45.4%, well above the industry at 3.5 for the last year. Sales are up 1.1%. Industry was down 2.2. Five-year growth for ConAgra, not so great, 1%. Industry's up 5.3. And they do pay a nice dividends I talked about, 4.9%. They use about 66% of the earnings to pay that out, so that's a pretty big positive there on that dividend. On the balance sheet, current ratio 0.9 versus 1.3. I wish I had a little more liquidity there, but debt does look good. One versus 1.1. Net profit margin very good, 8.1 versus 5.9, and return on equity is 10.9 versus 21.6. Chase, what do you got going forward? Well, first, looking at these brands here, um, I thought they had more brands, I guess, that were recognized, but I mean, they still have some, like right. Slim Jim. I, we all know about Slim Jim. I, I had a Slim Jim not too long ago. Yeah, they, they have the David, like, sunflower seeds, uh, Hunt's, the, the like, tomatoes ketchup uh, brand, and then Ready Whip, actually, that was a big one I, that I recognized there, uh, and then Vlasic, the... Uh, pickles? The pickles, <laughs> yep. Orville Redenbacher, that's another fun one. Yeah. Snack Pack, I remember being a kid having a snack pack and then Swiss Miss which is like hot cocoa and the other one I saw there too was Pam like the cooking spray oh yeah 
Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, a, a recognizable company at the end of the day is what we're looking at. Uh, looking at the current price here, though, for, again, Conagra, uh, ticker symbol CAG, $28.62. Yeah, 52-week low here, $25.16 in the high. Wow, $38.94. So this has been under pressure, and, again, the, the whole – kind of uh, weight loss drugs have really pressured these packaged food companies uh, as people are worried that you're not going to be eating as much if you're on these weight loss drugs, which I think is frankly just overblown concern at this point in time. Let me just comment on that real quick because one thing that's starting to happen is you can't take those weight loss drugs forever and people are starting to come off them because you can't get the drug again and then they go back to where they were before. So it's not a long-term solution. So I think you're right. This could be a short-term problem that goes away. Yeah, I, I just, I don't see it. And, yeah. you know, I don't, I've never taken the drug, so I have no idea its impact. But, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I still am going to want a snack pack, you know? <laughs> I still like my snacks, my chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> but looking at the valuations for this company, I mean, this is what kind of entices us. So you go out to May 2025, I see estimated earnings per share of $2.69. It gives us a target sell price of $44.65. And, I mean, this company's not growing that much. But, again, estimated earnings growth next year is about 3.5%. You're buying it around 10 times earnings. You get a nice dividend, I think you said. So, I mean, that's what you're looking at buying this this company for is, you know, kind of that stability, good valuations. Uh, you're not going to make, I don't think, 50% in the next year on it. No. Uh, very unlikely. But uh, I think it's a, a an intriguing potential position to add to the portfolio. Yeah, you're investing in a stable company. And, and look at it this way. Uh, if the stock just increases by $3, only $3, you add back that dividend, you've got close to 15% return for a very stable company. And you know the company. You know about the popcorn. You know about the ready work. You know about these things. It will still fluctuate up and down, but you've got a business you know, and it should make you feel more comfortable knowing the business. Because a lot of times, I think people invest in businesses, they have no idea what they do. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. And it's, again, it's not exciting, but it's one of those big, dumb, boring companies that it, that, that could be a great investment long term. Yes, yes. So, uh, well, let's, uh, I, I think uh, we do have our mortgage expert here, our real estate expert, uh, Robert Behek. So, let's go ahead and, and talk to Robert. We, we are going to talk about uh, Taiwan Semiconductor when we come back uh, from that. But I, I do want to talk to Robert Behek, who is president of Countywide Mortgage Lending. Robert, you're with us. I am here. Good morning. Well, good morning. How are you doing? Everything good there for you in the mortgage real estate world here? Everything is fantastic. <laughs> okay. Well, I know today you're talking about buying a home with a reverse mortgage. This is a new concept to me. What are you talking about here? So it's interesting because I have financial planners that have been reaching out to me uh, as of late, and they have clients that are wanting to downsize. So you can sell your home, you can take the profits, and you can utilize it to purchase a home with a reverse mortgage so you won't ever have a payment. And you only use about half of the proceeds. So it's a concept where they're able to leave their money in their 401k, keep things growing, maybe even add to it, and uh, move into downsizing into a different piece of property. On top of that, they get to take their property tax bill with them in the state of California. And so it really makes sense for some people. And, and Robert, this is a good concept because I know I, I have heard of people, some of our clients are older, they say, yeah, the kids are gone, I am going to downsize. Never thought about 
doing it with a reverse mortgage. I mean, but you do hear some bad things about reverse mortgages. Maybe you can expand on that a little bit too. Absolutely. Thank you. They, they had, they were terrible. <laughs> they were. Put it lightly there. <laughs> yeah. Huh? yeah. I mean, I, we love this. That's why I love you guys. Cause you guys shoot it straight. The thing is when the mortgage industry debacle happened in 08 to 10, they really became to clean up their act. And these became mostly FHA type loans by the federal government. They're called HECMs. And, you know, we always say it starts with a conversation, right? This isn't something we're going to push you to do in 30 days. This is something that it could take a six months <laughs> or longer. But uh, for the right people, it, it definitely makes sense. And, and how many people, um, because, again, I mean, and one thing, too, I was thinking, a, a couple of things I'm thinking here, I'm all over the board, but you said they keep the same tax base. Now, I guess if they had that house for a long time, it would be less because you're generally downsizing. But if you bought that house 30 years ago, even if you got a house that was more expensive because of the fact that it was, you know, in a nice area, say, say you went from El Cajon to the beach or something, you're going to spend more for the home, but you got to keep your tax base, correct? So I, it, that's exactly right. I have a client who bought in Claremont Mesa. Mm -hmm. They paid $89,000 for the home. <laughs> I wish they had six. But uh, they're selling that home for in excess of a million dollars. They're taking the profits from the house, and they're going to use 300000 of it to move into their new home, never have a mortgage payment, and still have the same property tax bill they did before. And, and so then we're thinking yeah. here of being investment guys, and, and then you can invest a half million, also have cash flow coming in. They can travel to Hawaii. They can do a lot of different things. What a smart thing to do. They can try Uber in Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you can afford it do, doing that, the reverse mortgage that way. <laughs> well, well, Robert, let me ask, are there any drawbacks that maybe we're not thinking of that you had seen doing this? Being And, and again, you've been doing this for what, over 30 years? We just referred a client to with a complicated situation. You know a lot about this industry. Anything that we're, we're not thinking of that people should be aware of? You know, it really starts with a conversation, guys. It, everybody's situation is unique, and it's not made for everybody. It isn't. Right. But for a lot of people, it does work. And really, when you get down to the end of the day, it's about quality of life. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's one reason why we, we refer business to you. That's why you're here, because I've known you for, again, many years. Uh, you're very easy to talk to, but you're also very knowledge knowledgeable. And, and that's important when you talk about having that conversation. You want to have a conversation, but you want to make sure the person you talk to knows what they're talking about. Well, ranked in the top 1% of mortgage guys in the country, and I have been doing this for 35 years as a mortgage banker. So, yeah, we, we do know what we're doing. Yeah, and, and actually uh, one of the top 100 mortgage companies in America since 2012. I and mean, you guys got some very good uh, accolades there. And we're proud of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, Robert, this, this is a very, very helpful for people. Let's talk about if they need to talk to you more on this, they want to have the conversation, what's the best way to hold you? The easiest way is if you look at our uh, website, which is countywidemtg.com or you can reach me actually on my cell phone, 760-443-3821. And I'll give you that number again. It's 760-443-3821. Great. Well, Robert, thank you very much. We appreciate that. And we'll talk more with you next week. Have a good one. Enjoy the rest of your day, guys. Bye. You too. Bye-bye. 
Alrighty, well, again, thank you uh, to Robert B. Hick for calling in there. And one thing I like about him, too, is, again, there's a little more strategy. It's not just like, oh, what's my interest rate on it? You know, I, they really kind of, again, have that conversation with you. Do you have to point out, Countywide Mortgage Lending is a division of Golden Empire Mortgage, Inc., NMLS number 1104585, licensed by the Department of Financial Protection and Innovation under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. Countywide Mortgage Lending is an equal housing lender and proud member of the BBB. So thank you again, Robert, for joining us today. Yes, and he'll be back again next week, but give him a call. That was a great idea on the reverse mortgage if you're downsizing, because we do talk to people about that. And what a great way to do it. Well, especially in retirement, a lot of times you want to enjoy retirement. Yeah. Huh? And, and we always tell people a house is an illiquid asset. Yeah, right. it's great. You might not have a housing payment, but you have this, I'm going to say, million and a half dollar asset that you can't do anything yeah. with, you can't take cash flow with. And, you know, as you said, it's not for everybody, but it, I mean, it's a potential financial tool you can use. And that's the thing people miss out. Debt is a tool. And yeah, if you're using the wrong mm -hmm. tool, it's going to hurt you. But if you use it properly, it can really enhance your retirement, I would say. Exactly. And I know Robert does work with our financial planner, Harrison Johnson, as well, because many concepts, many different things we want to look at. Well, we promised we would take a look at a Taiwan semiconductor because the the whole chip industry is really doing extremely well this year. Uh, and I think they reported earnings. I think they did very well. Do you remember? Yeah, no, they, they reported very strong earnings there. And, um, you know, I, I think it's a... Again, the, the, the whole industry has really gone through some issues over the last couple of years with the acceleration of the kind of COVID at home. Everybody buying PCs it was a big boom, and then all of a sudden that fell off, really hurt the semiconductor industry. And, and now I think, as we talked about earlier in the show, I think that's kind of turning the corner, not to mention the AI hype and everything else involved there. I mean, we've talked you know, a couple of years ago that semiconductors is really a space that you wanted to look at because it is a growing industry, a growing business here. Yeah. And, and you know, when we talk about these things, these are things we kind of talk about how we talk about in the workshop. Uh, I want to remind you that workshop again, because it's coming up very quickly, Thursday, February 8th, six o'clock in Scripps Ranch. It is a great place to learn about the fundamentals on investing and the strategies we use to find good value investments how to invest in a volatile market, and investing to build wealth and to get uh, retirement income. Again, that's February 8th at 6 o'clock. You can register at our, workshop, at our website, smartinvesting2000.com. Again, that's smartinvesting2000.com. I bring it up because there's so many things we look at. You may hear the concept, but don't quite get them. That is why we do the workshop. But let's get back to Taiwan Semiconductor because they are in the semiconductor industry. Shows no float on it. Only 17.2% institutional owned. I think that's because it's an ADR. That's right. Yep, that's why. Uh, we do see that their P.E. ratio is 22.3 versus 54. That's a big positive. Price of sales, 8.7 versus 8.5. Price to book value, 5.6 versus 6.7. And price to cash flow, 14 versus 25.9. So even though it's kind of expensive, it's still below the industry. We do see a peg ratio, not so good, 5 versus 2.2. It means you are paying uh, a higher amount for the future growth of the company, so it's not on sale. Uh, we do see, wow, this surprised me, earnings per share over the last year are down 12.2%, industry up 20.6%. Sales are down 4.5 versus 5.5. I want to give a caveat here. Perhaps these numbers have not been updated yet for the quarter. Could be the situation. Slightly. So, uh, again, we're giving these numbers. You want to always do your own research and double-check it, but uh, could have changed when the numbers came out. Uh, we do say they pay a dividend. 1.7%. Uh, this does surprise me. They use 33% to pay out their dividend. Uh, that's 
kind of a high amount, I thought, for 1.7% dividend. The balance sheet, uh, current ratio, 2.2 versus 3. That's good. Debt to equity, very good, 0.3 versus 0.5. Net profit margin, wow, 40.3 versus 16.9. That means for every dollar that they bring in, they keep 40 cents of that dollar. And we do see return to equity, 26.1 versus 29.6. That is a good number. Chase, what about going forward? Yeah, so current price here for, again, Taiwan Semiconductor, uh, their ticker, ticker symbol TSM was $114.20. The 52-week low here, $81.21. And yeah, close to that 52-week high, $115.15. Actually looks like they hit that high uh, yesterday uh, during the market uh, day there. Looking out for the company, though, we go out to December 2025 now. So we are moving out to an additional kind of fiscal year since they have now reported 2023 numbers. Uh, we look at that, the estimated earnings per share, $7.72. We get a target sell price of $128.15. Uh, you know, about 14 and a half times the future earnings. So it, it's not necessarily a great value. It'd be actually in our hold category. I do see good estimated growth. I mean, they're looking for about 21% growth this year on earnings and then 23% growth actually in 2025 on those earnings. So again, it looks like they're anticipating semiconductors could continue to do well. And what did you say the growth on the stock was? I missed that. Uh, I didn't give the growth on oh. the stock. I gave the forward PE of about 14 and a half times. Okay, because I mean, one thing I'm looking at with, with the situation going on, say around the it's world, about twelve percent, twelve percent, and it would take quite a bit for that to fall back to, and, and we like a margin of safety about thirty percent. So the stock would have to fall to hundred. The target sell price would have to go up to about one thirty. Um, we may have missed this one. I mean, I know the low you said was eighty one. I don't think we missed it. I mean, obviously you missed it in hindsight, right. and I still stand by it. I would not buy this company. Um, we still don't know what the heck's going to happen in Taiwan. True. And, you know, China has really been quite aggressive and it could be some issues there. We know that Taiwan just had an election, which potentially could even, you know, poke the bear even yeah. so much, uh, so to speak, a little bit more with China. I, I just, I think the company's great. I mean, they are really fantastic at manufacturing the semiconductors. I think it's them and Samsung are really the only ones that do it. Intel's trying to get it in this game. But, I mean, Taiwan Semiconductors has... has such a, a great process there in manufacturing them. But I am just concerned that China comes in and says, no, actually, we're going to take that technology. <laughs> I, I I just, I don't think it's worth the risk, especially at, you know, 14 and a half times earnings. And the world is changing. Well, so is the semiconductor industry, because I think Taiwan is, Taiwan Semiconductor is spending, I think, $20 billion to build a plant here. Intel's doing it here, actually around the world. Uh, the world is not sitting waiting for it to see what China does. Now, I'll say if China does it tomorrow, it'll be a problem. I don't think they will, but they could in the future years to come. By that time, I don't believe it would be such a big thing because the world is preparing for that bad situation to happen. Yeah, I mean, all else equal, you give me Intel, you give me Taiwan Semiconductor, if they had the same valuations, which they don't, Intel still a little bit expensive after the increase last year. Yeah. I, I would take Intel because I, I like that they are pursuing this as a competitor to Taiwan Semiconductor without the same type of, of risk. And obviously, Intel has business in China, but I think it would be a lot less detrimental if there was further issues with the country. You know, Chase, we don't have a lot of time left, but I, but I thought we would just revisit uh, Boeing because we talked about Boeing. We did not know they're going to have that situation, obviously. I mean, no one knew that. Uh, but a lot has changed since we talked about it. I mean, I think the stock's fallen quite a bit, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it looks like they were up a little bit today. I think they've had some uh, additional orders that, that kind of have 
come through, but I, I do believe they had like, I think it was like seven days in a row or something of being down. I see year to date, the stock's actually down about 19%. Current price at $215. Uh, 52-week high here was 267.54. So, I mean, that's fallen pretty drastically from there. And it looks like it started the year around uh, about 260. And they have not reported earnings yet. Uh, I don't see. I don't know if you can see it when they report earnings because I. I think if you did look at buying Boeing, and you might want to wait, uh, especially now. I believe they're on a calendar year basis. So what will happen when they report earnings? You'll then see what the estimated earnings are going out to December of 2025. They have pulled back somewhat, but I. I I'm just not seeing any reason at this point in time. Uh, and I'll. I'll, I'll Put, put it on you because uh, you've got that there to see what the fir- the target sell price would be on Boeing. I think it's probably still below the 200, I think, is it? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. when we looked at this, this is a company that we looked at a couple weeks ago. And I, I just, this company is so hard to evaluate because their contracts are so far out right. that their earnings don't really match the, the con. This is a, yeah. a very complicated business because, I mean, they're, yeah, they're trading out 54 times uh, 2024 estimated earnings. Even 2025, when when you see that, as you said, maybe they'll get better numbers there, but you're still only looking at $8.34 for estimated earnings per share, which means they're trading at about 25 times those earnings. So I I just, Boeing is such a complicated business that I like to try and avoid complicated. And what is the uh, one in Germany? Airbus, I think, is uh, in France. What? Oh, they're in France. Okay, mm-hmm. Airbus is in France, uh, but they were talking about how uh, you know con- uh, airlines go to Air France or to go to Air- Airbus uh, to get their their planes. They said they are so backed up, you won't get a plane for seven or eight years. So that's one of the benefit that there are contracts that don't go very long. But you're correct; it's so hard to value a Boeing, Boeing uh, value an Airbus. Um, I I just don't think it's worth it unless. And I remember Boeing at one point in time was down to thirty dollars a share. That was a time to buy them. Yeah. 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 Or <laughs> I remember talking about this. Uh, I think they hit like, yeah, they were at like $420 a share a couple of years ago. Yeah. And, and, and I'm, I, that was just way too expensive. And, and yeah, now it's, well, half that down more than 50%. Yeah. And I, I remember because they were part of the Dow. Yeah. yeah. They are part of the Dow. Are they still part of the Dow? I think they are. Yeah. yeah. And, and you have to understand when they're at like $400 a share, the Dow, instead of being a market cap weighted index, like the S&P 500 mm-hmm. is a price weighted index. So with their their share price at 400 it was occupying a lot of the Dow. And as that was just moving up yeah. and up and up, it was moving the Dow higher. And I mean, that's one thing you got to understand too with index investing. You got to understand what type of index you're investing in and how those companies within it move that index. And yes. I said, Boeing, and still actually... You look at Boeing and, and the Dow. The Dow hasn't kept up with the S&P and, and the NASDAQ. Boeing at $200 a share is still a pretty good chunk of the, the Dow. Yeah, price-weighted index. That, that's that's correct. So, Well, I, I, I'm sure you are, like I am, very excited about that workshop coming up on February 8th at 6 o'clock in our office in Scripture. We've done that uh, before. And looking forward to the, the one for the last almost a year we haven't done it. Yeah, April was our last one. Yeah. Well, there's a closing bell. Thank you for listening to the Smart Investing Show. It is for informational purposes only and should not be used as investment advice. If you'd like to discuss in more detail your investment needs, have other investment questions, feel free to call myself Brent Wilsey or Chase Wilsey at 858-224-0004. Okay. <laughs> Go on the website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. And there you can listen to the podcast if you missed any of the show today. Thanks for listening to the Smart Investing Show. We'll be back next week. so amusing to think.
I did all that And may I say 